name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For today's episode of the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree, we will be talking with Jonathan Ike, a respected author of several great books, which we will be concentrating on his first, The Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig which is considered by many as the definitive biography of the Iron Horse. Welcome to our podcast, Jonathan. Thanks, Bob. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah. Um, I guess the best place to start is, uh, and I know this was your first book, and I remember you telling me that it was like a labor of love. Um but could you share with our listeners why you decided to write a book on Lou Gehrig? It was such a labor of love. First of all, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I grew up in New York, and uh, I always kind of took Lou for granted as a Yankee fan. You know, my my, my heroes as a kid who were you know, the ones who were still playing were Thurman Munson and Bobby Mercer and Roy White. Um, and then, of course, there's the Mount Rushmore of, you know, Ruth Gehrig, DiMaggio, Mantle, but um, Gehrig was the one that often got overlooked, and I realized um, when I got to be in my mid-30s that I was, wow, I was at the age when Lou Gehrig got sick and had to stop playing, and you know, when you're a kid, you don't really appreciate just how young Lou was, and, and I began wondering, what did he go through? What were the conditions like? How was it diagnosed? When did he start to show symptoms? So did he play with symptoms of ALS? Um, and, and what happened after he gave his great speech? You know, he calls himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth, and he steps uh, steps off the field. And what happened after that? And I just became so curious that I I, I couldn't believe that nobody had. Uh, there was a there was a there was a good um, Garrick biography uh, that was written many many years earlier, but it didn't deal at all with his life after baseball with his illness. And I just couldn't believe that nobody had told that story yet. So I was very hyped up to uh, get a chance to, to do that. Which, which is curious because, I mean, nowadays, people from our generation, when you mention Lou Gehrig, that's, I think, the first thing that pops in your head is the uh, the Lou Gehrig disease. We don't think so much about the RBIs and the championships and the Bronx Bombers and the, you know, Murderer's Row and stuff. We, we think about the uh, the disease, so it's quite curious that nothing has ever been written that you know written from that perspective before um that favor that famous scene which you just alluded to during the uh which took place during the lou gehrig appreciation day what do you think the thoughts were that were going through his mind <laughs> well you could see it on his face uh, in all the photos and the video from that day the film from that day he was panic stricken he was he was um, he was a shy guy yeah. he hated the spotlight you know he posed for pictures and and, um, and you know, certainly when he when he marked a milestone a thousand games uh, two thousand games in a row without taking a day off he would you know he'd, he'd uh, yuck it up with the press but he hated uh, the spotlight he, he he did not like giving interviews he um, was I think he was really um panic-stricken to have to face the crowd that day and to do it it's one thing to do it when you're when you're celebrating something it's another to do it when you're facing uh, you know this horrible news that you don't have long to live and uh, i think he would have rather been on his boat fishing than than right than standing in front of that crowd of sixty-one thousand that day you know it, it's funny that um he's like the antithesis of of babe ruth 
But when we think of Lou Gehrig, another thing that we think of, we always um, think of the babe and Lou Gehrig. I mean, it's it's so. What what was their relationship like? I've I've heard different things about it. Um, what was the relationship between the babe and Lou? It was good in the beginning, right? Yeah, it was very good. It was complicated over the years, but um, it started out. You know, Lou's younger. He comes to the team as the first real slugger uh, the Yankees uh, get since after Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth is changing the way baseball is played, and every team is looking for guys who could hit home runs. And here comes Gehrig, and he's actually challenging Ruth um, for the for the home run crown in 1927 and they become celebrities together but Ruth is always the big brother to Lou and and, and frankly you know Ruth likes being the big brother and he likes the fact that Lou looks up to him and, you know Lou they're both Germans and um, Lou invites uh, Babe over for dinner after the game and you know Babe was raised in an orphanage so um, having a, a family that, that speaks German that cooks for him um, it was a it was a really sweet friendship and it's made more interesting by the fact that Lou is so shy babes out carousing and drinking and, and Lou wants none of it he just goes back to the hotel and reads a book after the ball games and when they're on the road so they're an odd couple for sure um, but they they like they like each other I, I would dare say they, they love each other um, and it gets it, it gets choppier in later years when Luke is married and and Eleanor um, may have had a relationship with the babe or at least dated the babe uh, or slept with the babe um, before meeting Lou um, that complicates the relationship and, and uh, Lou's mother um, is, is violently opposed to Lou marrying Eleanor so that gets messy too yeah that's that's one of the questions I wanted to ask uh, later was the relationship between the uh, you know Eleanor and, and Lou's mom I mean was it Ever good? I mean, the movie depicts it as it was a uh, um, an adversarial type. Well, not even adversarial. I mean, like, almost a hatred, right? Between yeah, it was never good, and and it only got worse uh, when we got sick. And but yeah, think the important thing to remember about that movie, Pride of the Yankee, is that Eleanor was a consultant, and she used it to take a lot of cheap shots at Ma Gehrig and Pa Gehrig, oh. um, and and really portrayed them badly. And um, that's uh, if you get another you know, nail in the coffin of their relationship because you know Ma and Pa Gehrig lived for lived for years after Lou died and and, and it was sad because you know Lou was was a real mama's boy. Right. Um, he loved his mother. Even in, in, into his early thirties, he was you know he'd take his mother with him to spring training and on road trips. You know stuff that the other team, the other <laughs> ball players laughed at him for. Uh, it was embarrassing, but he didn't care. Yeah. Um, and um, to have a wedge driven in that relationship, and then to have your you know, your wife say that your mother-in-law is not welcome in the home when 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 Lou was dying. Um, you know, that was that was rough. You know, that's that's the thing that uh, I thought was horrible. I mean, I didn't realize. Um, th I mean, in the movie, did they uh, depict that at all? That she wouldn't allow the mother there, or uh, I mean, uh, no, I don't think they they did. I don't think they talked about that in the movie. The movie really ends when uh, when Gary gives a speech. Right. You don't see um, any of the illness. You don't see any of the um, the family breaking apart afterwards. And um, that was, you know, they, they wanted the movie to be more like a love story. So right. they didn't get into all of that, that stuff. 
Yeah, they. I mean, you have Gary Cooper, so I mean, it's glamorized. I mean, they, they exactly. They definitely uh, were looking to do that. Now, when when Lou talked about his childhood, he rarely mentioned his father. Um, wh what do you think the reason for that was? I mean, what was his childhood like? Um, you know, he had a, a, a challenging childhood, and his parents lost um, you know, three other kids. So, and, and that was you know. To lose three out of four is, is rough for any any era, but back then, um, you know, because there was a penicillin and the you know, health conditions weren't great, parents I, I did a, did lose children more often than we do today. But that was tough, and they grew up poor. He was an immigrant, you know, his parents were immigrants, um, and um, I, I think his father took a took a beating a little bit from his mother because he was he, he drank a bit, he was lazy, and so um, Lou's mom kind of. Uh, Tried to turn Lou against against Pa Gehrig, and, and I think that was uh, so. The, the the home wasn't wasn't great. You know, there was some conflict there. Yeah. Now, um, Lou went to uh, Columbia in college. That's right. He was a star um, baseball and football player yeah. in high school, and was recruited by a number of schools. And um, he could have gone anywhere, really, given his. Um, his, his athletic talents, but he wanted to stay close to home, in right. part because he loved his mom so much and he was so nervous about always pleasing her. And his mom worked as a as a housekeeper at one of the fraternities on the campus at Columbia. So here's Lou, should be like the, you know, the, the star of the campus, big man on campus, you know, star of all the athletic teams, super handsome guy. And uh, he doesn't get to really enjoy the, the fruits of, of any of that because he's, he's so... Um, wedded to his mother, and he, he's actually going after baseball and football practice to the uh, to help his mother clean up at this fraternity where he's not even a member. So um, he was a he was a curious young man. Yeah. Now, I mean, Columbia. I mean, nowadays is well, it's an Ivy League. Uh, it's a great college. Um, did Lou get in there? I mean, how was he scholastically? I mean, athletically, of course, he was superior than than most people. Was was he a a good student also or um, not great solid you know he had to take some uh, some makeup classes for, for some mediocre grades he had in high school and yeah he got he got passing grades maybe a little better than passing but he was no he was no academic whiz yeah now before I ask this next next question because this is a question that I was curious about but I'm curious as to um, did you learn anything new about Lou when you started writing this book? <laughs> oh man, so much! Oh, really? On every page, <laughs> on every page, there's something new about him that uh, I think I didn't know, and that most Yankee fans wouldn't know. Um, the biggest thing, though, I mean, the number one thing was that I found 200 pages of letters that Garrick wrote to his doctor as he was going through ALS and describing the conditions, describing. Um, you know, how he was feeling physically and psychologically, uh, describing what this was doing to his loved ones, uh, just really painful, beautiful letters that showed that he, that he never gave up, never felt bad, never, uh, you know, gave in to self-pity, tried to protect the people around him, tried to, you know, carry on like he thought there might be a cure, really, you know, um, trying to convince, even when he knew that the cure wasn't going to work, he did his best to protect his family from that information. And just carrying on as if like he he wasn't going to give up, no matter what the uh, no matter what the news was. And that those letters were just heartbreaking. You know, 
looks like from what you just just mentioned, um, the persona that was projected in the movie about Lou Gehrig seemed to be point on. I mean, I mean, he came across like that, a caring, uh, you know, a caring person who was, you know, going going through a struggle, but was more concerned with uh, those that surrounded him. Um, but the the question. Or the thing I found curious, and I don't know if I had ever heard this, but what did John McGraw think of uh, Lou Gehrig? Well, he made one of the biggest mistakes of his of his baseball career in passing mm -hmm. on Lou Gehrig when he tried out uh, for, the, for the Giants. And um, I guess Gehrig bound a booty to grounder or something like that. And uh, McGraw thought that was a deal killer. Like, if this kid can't field his position. And no matter how big and strong he is, no matter how many, you know, he was knocking the ball out of the park in this, in this tryout, but McGraw didn't think he was a real ball player, and uh, McGraw failed to see how power was, was about to change the game, and and, uh, and Garrett was more than good enough as a fielder, and he got better all the time because he worked so hard at it, so uh, I think even McGraw would admit he blew that one. Yeah, well, I mean, he was from the, you know, from the small ball era, so, you know, it was hard for I guess people from that era to um, uh, welcome in, you know, the the sluggers like Babe and and like Lou. Um, yeah, Ty Cobb never got used to it. Ty Cobb was yeah. Hated uh, these sluggers. He thought they were ruining the game. And um, you know, maybe Cobb was right. I don't know, but uh, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't adapt. Right. Right. Now, um, I also read that Lou was a pitcher in college, or he did some pitching. Uh, do you think he could have been a big league pitcher if um, if he would have went that way, like you know, like Babe did? Or yeah, I don't know. He was a solid pitcher. You know, he threw the ball pretty hard, and right. that was always Garrick's thing. He was a big, strong guy with you know really massive legs and big shoulders, and he worked out at a time when most players didn't. But what he's Garrick was was hitting the gym, so. Um, yeah, I threw the ball pretty hard. I don't know if he ever, if he would have really uh, made it as a pitcher. And he probably he wouldn't have enjoyed it either, Jonathan. I don't, I don't think. Uh, I mean, yeah, he liked to be in the lineup every day, and yeah. um, I think being pitching uh, wouldn't have been enough to satisfy him. Yeah. Um, what can you tell us about the famous Wally Pip? I mean, we, you know, the majority, I think, of baseball fans uh, think of Wally. Pretty much that he was the guy that Lou replaced and everything. But Wally Pitt was a pretty darn good ball player, also. Wouldn't that be a good uh, assumption? Yeah, Pitt was one of the stars of the Yankees in the early twenties, and uh, he was winding down though by the time Gary came along. So there's this famous story that you know Pitt complained of a headache one day, and. and they put Gary in instead, and Pitt never got his job back. And Gary went on to play 2,130 consecutive games. It's not exactly true. Um, um, Pitt did not complain of a headache. Uh, he was slumping, and uh, Miller Huggins wanted to shake up the roster a little bit, shake up, shake up the lineup. So he put in Gary and, and a couple of other guys who didn't regularly play. And Gary um, had a great day. He had a, had a couple of hits, double, I think, if I remember correctly, and. Uh, and, uh, and the Yanks won, and uh, Huggins decided to stick with that lineup and to give, and give Gary a chance. So, um, you know, 
does not have a headache to blame. He's got uh, he's got Luke Eric to blame for yeah. his replacement. Well, I I recall from when I read the book that um, Pip played that up afterwards, didn't he? Like on the banquet circuit, he said, didn't he? Uh, kind of. Uh, uh, Make jokes about the like aspirin. I mean, he he went along with that that story that the you know it was the you know the most famous headache, I guess you would say. Yeah, he did because it, it added to his fame, and you know he could always get a free drink at the bar when he told that story. I'm sure. Right. So it was um, it was a good line, and and, uh, and the sports writers liked it, and you know, pip became a verb. You know, to get pip just to. Uh, is to take a day off and to never give your job back or to be replaced by someone younger and, and uh, hungrier. And, yeah. and uh, I, I don't know if kids today know that expression, but it, it, you know, for a long time, that was what made Wally Pip more famous than his entire baseball career. Right, right, exactly. And, and did Wally Pip, didn't he lead the American League in home runs at one time? I mean, they didn't hit a lot back then, but I think he... Uh, yeah, might have, I, I don't recall. Yeah. Um, I also think I recall um, in your book that you said that the Yankees at one time considered trading Lou, I guess when he was real young, or was that true? Or Yeah, they did entertain some offers, and um, they, um, I don't think they ever got real serious. I mean, they had a great young player, and they had a bargain on their hands. They yeah. had a box office star, so, uh, but, but they did consider it for a while. Often they were, you know, they were looking for... Uh, for Jewish players, at one point they they were they actually asked Gehrig if he if he could if, he, if they could pass him off as Jewish if they could just because they were trying to get more Jews to come out to the ballpark. So um, you know, but I think the Yankees knew they had a chip with Gehrig, and, and there, there may have been a brief moment when they considered a trade, but it was never serious. Okay, yeah, because I I found that quite uh, curious. I couldn't think of anybody. I I know it's hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know I. It was hard to, you know, given what you had described and what I looked in the, uh, you know, baseball reference as far as his stats and stuff, that anybody would ever think of, uh, you know, trading a, the great iron horse. Um, do you, like, well, we did talk about Garrig and Ruth and, and how their uh, personalities were kind of direct opposites. Uh, and you described the relationship that was like, you know, the babe was like a big brother and everything. Um, let's, what did I want? Oh, yeah. Do you think, do you think the babe ever, do you think the babe made Garrick better? Do you think, uh, I mean, was he a mentor and he made him, you know, or it just happened, you know, naturally? I, I, I think Garrick would have been first baseman of all time and one of the great hitters of his era with or without Babe Ruth and you know Gary has been on a different team there's no question he would have worked just as hard he would have hit just as many home runs might not have you know he would have driven in he probably would have driven in more runs because right. remember he was batting after Babe Ruth and Babe Ruth you know cleared the bases with home runs you know roughly you know 45 50 times a year and, and those are RBIs that, that might have gone to Garrick. So um, you could argue that on the other hand, Garrick over oh, was also walked a lot in front of Garrick. So um, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses, but I don't think he's um, made Garrick. I think he just, he, but he certainly made it better. Right, right. Now, did um, I mean, you know, we've seen the famous picture, you know, the barnstorming pictures of, uh, you know, Babe and Lou and everything. Um, how did 
did did Lou like barnstorming? Did he enjoy that, or was it just something that Christy Walsh uh, had him do? Or Look, Eric seemed to enjoy it. Um, he didn't. He did not enjoy partying. He did not enjoy going out at night. Um, but, but he he loved baseball. He loved being around the babe, and um, I think he liked the, the sort of the. the he, he was a, like a little kid sometimes. You know, he loved competition of any kind, even if it was not you know serious competition. But you know, they got to see the country. They got to you know Barcelona against Negro Leaguers. They got to uh, you know just um, they was treated like the, the biggest stars in the world everywhere they went. And I think and they and they got paid um, for. Doing what they loved, um, so you know a lot of ballplayers back then had to take real jobs in the off season. They, they'd go home and work at the gas station or the hardware store. So I think you know, Gary felt very lucky to be able to make some extra money this way. Yeah. You know the other thing that I felt kind of bad for Lou, like you know seeing and you know I had read you know Jane Levy's book on on Babe, which talked. I think predominantly about like Christy Walsh and and all of the, you know, like the money perspective of everything, but um, it seemed like there was a disparity between, I mean, a huge one between Babe and Lou, what they were getting. Don't you think? I mean, I know Babe Ruth was an icon and he saved baseball, and but I mean, he it, it seemed like at. Sometimes he got paid like almost 10 times as much. Well, maybe that's exaggeration, but, you know, a lot more than Lou Gehrig. And, you know, what do you... There's no question about that. I mean, Babe was the drawing, was the drawing card. And, and his salary uh, with the Yankees was certainly bigger than Lou's um, because he was the biggest star in the world, uh, the biggest star in the game, for sure. And one of the biggest stars of any kind in, in the entire country. So, you know, he, he demanded it and he, he earned it. He, he, it's worth it uh, because the the, the fans would be packed to the seats, and on the barnstorming tour as well, he made more than Lou. Uh, because again, you know, there's no question, you know, who was the the, the number one star there. If, if if Lou couldn't go on the barnstorming tour, Babe would have gone him without him, and the crowds would have been probably just as big. It was the idea of seeing both of them, two right. greatest sluggers in baseball in one place, that that made it extra appealing. Right. Um, do you remember what you uh, you wrote this quote or, or uh, uh, what Doc Painter had to say about Lou? Um, I, I can't exactly quote it, but Doc Painter was the um, the trainer, right, for the Yankees? Right. And he um, said something. I don't remember the quote off the top of my head. It's, yeah. it's been a while since I've Oh, yeah, it. yeah. It's um, like, what, 2005, I think you wrote that? or Yeah. Yeah. Right. Jeez, I'm I'm taking you way back. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But, but um, um, I know that you know that, that Garrett was an amazing physical specimen, and then you know, he insisted on playing every day. He played through, you know, broken bones. He played through the through the flu. He played through what probably were concussions. Um, so you know, Doc Painter was the guy who saw all of this and and, and patched him up. You know, those one incident where Garrett um, you know took a bean ball to the head and. You know, his, his head was so swollen the next day even that he couldn't get a hat on and, and they, they cut a hat apart and just like opened the seams so they could slide it on his head and, and he got back out there and played the next day so you know Gary that streak was was incredibly important to Gary in part yeah. because it was you know, just the, the, the German um, determination that he was that he was born into but also because it was it was something Babe Ruth could never do wow. um, 
you know, Ruth was needed time off all the time for his various belly aches and sexually transmitted diseases. And, and Garrett was really proud of the fact that he was in that lineup every day. Now, who was, and, and I think I know who it is, but um, if you could tell our listeners, who was the player that had the streak before Babe? I mean, before Lou. Oh, it was Everett Scott, the deacon, I think they called him. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, again, these numbers are used to be, you know, really <laughs> etched into my mind, but I think it was something yeah. like 1,300 games right. that, he, that he played. And, uh, and Garrett just blew this blew that number out of the water and went on to play what seems ridiculous. I mean, think about that. 2,130 consecutive games with lots and lots of daytime doubleheaders, two games in a row in the Siri. Um, no air conditioning in the hotels when you get back to the room, no air conditioning on the train, and you're not flying on, on planes between games, you're taking trains. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, for my money, that streak was much more difficult than uh, Cal Ripken's streak, and Cal Ripken deserves all the credit in the world for surpassing, surpassing a, a number that I thought would never be touched. Right. But um, I think the conditions for Garrett were, uh, were were more difficult. Oh, I, I totally agree, and and uh, one of the reasons I think of that is that you know. Um, you know, I played baseball in high school, but, uh, you know, as I got older, of course, playing softball. And I remember playing in tournaments in August, and, you know, you'd play like three or four games. I mean, if you did well, you, you played longer, and how exhausting it is to, you know, those hot August days. I mean, you know, for him to do it so many times, and I'm, I'm talking, I only did it, a, you know, a couple times, and it was for, you know, it was for my own entertainment. I mean, uh, that had to be day in and day out all summer long, and uh, and those uniforms were, were were pretty hot too. Oh yeah, they were wool, right? Didn't they play like in yeah. wool? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the wool hat, wool caps too. It was brutal. Yeah. Um, how would you compare Murderers Row and and the Bronx Bombers? Wow, um, you know it's very hard to compare ball players across different areas. Right. Um, but I think the you know the murderers were lined up at twenty seven was was maybe the greatest of all time and you know again you can't compare um, today's athletes to those athletes back then but um, just in terms of the the, the dominance and, and winning World Series year in and year out um, I, 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 to me they're still the greatest of all time but I'm a little biased right you know what I always felt felt bad about was I mean. You know, Lou was in the shadow of the babe for the beginning of his career, and then when he uh, played with what was it the uh, the Bronx Bombers? That was the one that the team that you know after the uh, Murderers Row, right? Wasn't Murderers Row the one in like twenty seven or, or right? What? Yeah. Okay, but um, that he was in the shadow of a, of a young Joe DiMaggio. I mean, what? Could you uh, share with us what the um, relationship between uh, Joe D and, and Lou was like? Um, once again, I think Garrett was relieved not to be in the spotlight. He was delighted when um, DiMaggio came along and, and, and the media loved him and he became a star. And, and Garrett served as kind of a mentor to DiMaggio and coached him on the responsibility of a ball player, and, you know, having the right attitude and, and playing the game the right way. Um, so, again, I, I think, you know, Garrett did not have a big ego. I think he was, he yeah. was more than happy to, uh, to see DiMaggio come along and take some of the attention off 
You know, that's mind-blowing that, you know, you said that he didn't have that big an ego, and which, you know, all the reading I did, that, of course, is true. I mean, I mean, you look at his numbers, I mean, anybody would get a swell head, you would think. I mean, what was, uh, <laughs> I mean, what was it, 180-some uh, RBIs that one year? Did yeah, he, I mean, unbelievable in, numbers. And, um, and he was still just like, you know, sign whatever contract they sent him every year. He never asked for more money, never put up a fuss, never, you know. This is a guy who, when the Yankees installed cushions in the dugout, uh, complained that he thought they should just keep sitting on the old wood. Because <laughs> the ball players would get soft if you gave them cushioned seats in the dugout. Wow. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, and you had said that before, that, um, you know, you had... A lot of respect and, and interest in Lou and everything. Um, what is your favorite Lou Gehrig story? Is there any story that you came across or that you knew about that was like your favorite favorite thing about? Oh wow! Him? Um, you know, I think uh, for me, the, the thing that I came across that that moved me so much is you know he goes to the Mayo Clinic and. In 1938, to find out what's wrong with him, and very quickly the doctors say we think this is it's this ALS thing and it's a fatal disease, but we want to spend a couple more days and really, you know, make sure because you know it's the worst possible diagnosis and maybe we'll find something else. So he hangs around there for a couple more days, and um, his wife isn't there; he's by himself. And, and what does he do in that time? He goes and like gives batting co gives batting tips to the local Boy Scouts. You know he. He, um, he plays catch with, with the doctor's son on his lawn. He gives a radio interview to this tiny little radio station in, 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 in Minnesota. Um, he just, once again, like, just what a lovely guy. Right. At the, at the, in his darkest hour, um, when, you know, I might have been in my room just sobbing the entire time. Um, he's out there trying to, like, help others and, and, and do nice things. It's, I just, I, I just fell in love with the guy. Yeah, he was kind of one of a kind. I mean, you, you, I mean, even, even the. I I can't think of anybody that would have have that I, that type of attitude. I don't even think that like, uh, you know, Pope Francis or somebody like or Mother Teresa. I mean, it's like, you know, it's amazing what, like what you just uh, described about him. Now, uh, yeah, really a special person. Okay, like I was going to ask you, the next question I was going to ask was how did Lou deal with ALS? But, of course, you just told us that, that he just went about the way he would without uh, ALS. Um, yeah, but not only that, I would also point out that you know, he, um, he sought out um, doctors and scientists who were experimenting on treatments, and he basically made himself a guinea pig and said, you know, let's try whatever you got. And um, when it became clear that it wasn't working and he was still getting weaker, um, one of those scientists published a, a, a scientific study in a scientific journal about, about his results. And the media, the reporters came around and said, Lou, is it true? This, you know, there's some promise here of a cure. And he said, well, yeah, um, it doesn't seem to be working for me. But but we're, we're we're you know we're trying we're gonna we're gonna find a cure for this thing and that that kind of attitude that again that unselfishness wow. you know it's just really inspiring. That is inspiring. Now, how did Lou's wife Eleanor deal with uh, the news of ALS? 
complicated again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tragic situation for any family member to learn that their loved one is is, is dying. And, and she did her best to, to help to protect him. She encouraged the doctors to keep going and to keep looking for things. And to, she even encouraged the doctors in one letter, encouraged them to lie to him and say, you know, that there's a chance he's going to beat this. Um, Lou knew it wasn't true, but again, she was just trying to give him some kind of a, some hope to cling to. And she did a great job of, of caring for him and, and keeping the house full of happiness and bringing friends into the house to distract him. Uh, you know, I think her biggest failure was her, her inability to, to um, sort of patch up the relationship with Lou's mother. And so, and you know, she, she really didn't let uh, Lou's mother visit her son for much of the time that he was ill. And, and that's to me really sad, but for the most part, Eleanor, I think, um, you know, did the best she could under very, very difficult circumstances. You know, that is pretty sad. I mean, the, that she didn't patch it up with uh, Lou's mother, given the fact that Lou had such a, well, he was a mama's boy, as we described before, um, for him to, you know, his mother was probably his biggest fan and biggest supporter, and then having the door shut in her face, I mean, uh, you know, that, it's hard to, to understand why. Um, yeah, really tough. Now, Lou's post-career, what did he do after baseball? I, I think I remember, didn't he, he had other jobs uh, before he passed away, I mean, after baseball, didn't he? I mean, what exactly? Yeah, it was really another interesting chapter in his life. You know, he, he could have just stayed on with the Yankees and, you know, sat in the dugout and maybe, you know, greeted fans, but he wanted to do something useful. Um, he was such an earnest guy that he, uh, he reached out to the mayor of New York, LaGuardia, and asked if he had any jobs available. And LaGuardia hired him as a parole commissioner. So mm -hmm. Derek took on this very serious job where he had to meet with, um, you know, juvenile delinquents. He had to visit prisoners and um, counsel them and try to, you know, handle their cases and help them make the transition for when they uh, got out of incarceration. Mm -hmm. So um, he worked really hard at it. He had to go to the office. There was paperwork involved. It was no, he, he took it very seriously. Now, how long, how long did that last? Did he do that for a couple of years or was it short? Well, he only lived for about a, you know, um, a year and a half, two years after his diagnosis. Oh, okay. Half, right? I, I think it was two years from the diagnosis. Um, so he, he did the job for about a year, if I remember correctly. And uh, it was only when you know, he began having difficulty walking and the elevator operators went on strike in New York and he couldn't get up the stairs to his office anymore. And he finally had to quit. Yeah, yeah. Um, to finish up, I was going to ask how accurate, and, and you had kind of alluded to this before because you said Eleanor was uh, a big influence in the movie, but how accurate was the movie? I mean, you know, from what I know and what I've read in your book, I mean, it sounded like it was, you know, it wasn't Hollywoodized or something as much. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there was some, but do you consider it? Yeah, I mean, they, they get the big picture right, and um, I think they get they do a nice job of capturing um, some of the, you know, the the relationship stuff with Eleanor. Although Eleanor, remember, is pulling some of the strings here, so she's making it uh, you know favorable to her. Um, yeah. My biggest complaint with the movie is that I felt like. Gary Cooper played Gary as a little bit wimpier than, than, than he should have. Right. He, he comes off being so soft and so um, timid 
that I just felt like, um, you know, again, you know, it was Eleanor's work there. That, you know, she wanted, she made herself the star of the movie, the toughest, most courageous person. And, uh, I thought that was a little unfair, but overall, it's, it's, you know, it's got, the movie has a lot going for it. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a heartbreaker for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and it was funny. I, and I think I read this in your book. Uh, what was it? Sam, Sam Goldwyn? Wasn't he the, the, uh, not director, but, you know, he was. He was the producer. He producer. Was the movie after seeing the, um, the newsreel footage of Gary giving his farewell speech. Yeah. Because I think you said that, I mean, at first he said, yeah, I, if people want to, you know, watch about watch baseball, they'll go to a game. I mean, who who the heck's going to be interested in a movie, right? Right, um, but you know, it was also um, he was also concerned because when, when the war when the war started, there weren't going to be any men around to watch these movies. They were all going to be fighting, so they had to turn it into more of a love story. And yeah. if you haven't read, uh, Richard Sandemir wrote a really wonderful book about the making of the movie, and oh, uh, no. he gets into all the details of that really nicely. It's a, it's a terrific book. I think it's called. I think it's called Pride of the Yankees, but um, I may be getting the title wrong. Well, I'll have to get a copy of that, definitely. Okay, well, that's all I had to ask about uh, Lou Gehrig, but, but I, what I wanted to um, just finish up with, I mean, I read your book on Jackie Robinson, what, what I thought was great also, Jonathan, but, and I want to get a copy of um, Ali, the book you did on him, because, I mean... Like you, I I grew up with him. I mean, how fun was it? Fun to write about Muhammad Ali, or did you? Was it a struggle, or? That was the most fun I've ever had. Oh, really? <laughs> um, because first of all, a lot of these guys are still alive. His three of his four wives are still alive. I got to hang out with Larry Holmes and Don King and hmm. um, and, and uh, George Foreman, and and they're all wild characters. Um, I got to meet Ali. I got to you know spend time with and hear their stories. So, uh, you know, I'm an old newspaper reporter. I like getting face-to-face -face with people and interviewing them in person. And I couldn't do much of that with Lou Gehrig because you know, there were only a few people alive still at that point who had never met him. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Ali book was, the, that was just incredible fun. You know, you mentioned Larry Holmes. Well, I live in a town called Stortsville, and I work in Phillipsburg, which is across the river from Easton, Pennsylvania. So yeah. Larry Holmes... Uh, He's big around here. I mean, they have a statue right along the Delaware. And um, just uh, a, a funny thing, when, when I first moved out here like 30-some years ago, we were at a, a stoplight, and, you know, I'm stopped, and I'm like out of the corner of my eye. I see the guy next to me, and he's got this huge hand, and there's this huge, huge ring on it. I look over, and I'm like, that's Larry Holmes. So I just said, hey, champ, and he just gave me, like, you know, put his fist <laughs> up on me. That said, I'm, oh, yeah, that must have been great. I mean, uh, Larry's a great guy. He still lives in his hometown. Still yeah. married to the same woman all these years. He's, he's, he's one, of the, good, one yeah. of the good guys. Now, the next book you're going to write, I understand, is on uh, Dr. King? Yeah, a, a big, fat biography of Dr. King. Uh, it'll be out next year, next spring. Okay, do you think it'll be out, be out before, or before like, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Day? Do you think you're going to shoot for that? or? I'm not sure yet, but we're, yeah. we're doing the best we can. It's done, and it's going through editing now. So oh, okay. We'll get it out as fast as we can. Because I'll look forward to it. I've, I've read, I think there's two books on... Uh, 
uh, Dr. King that to me is like, you know, a definitive, you know, history to him. So I'll really look forward to, um, you know, seeing And plus, Jonathan, you're just a wonderful writer and, and you bring things to light. You know, I really appreciate you taking time out to, uh, to talk with us on this podcast. I really do. Okay, Jonathan, you enjoy the rest of your day. And like I said, thank you so much. All right. Okay, bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, Baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds.